0: Apparently, the uh, music for the New Line logo was composed by Michael Kamen, who died just recently and who did the music for The Dead Zone. Beautiful score. So I'm always thinking about him now when I hear that logo music at the beginning of this movie. Well, here is the famous opening shot of History of Violence. It's been much talked about. Um, It is a single take that lasts about four minutes. Um... I did do coverage for it thinking that I might cut into it and shorten it or tighten it and so on, but it, the, the single shot worked so well that we decided to uh, let it play in one shot, which meant that I had the opportunity to do something that I haven't done for quite a few years, which is to have the credits for the film begin over an actual scene in the film, a scene with dialogue. I've, I've, I've avoided that for years because I felt based on many years of television versus movie watching, that it, it had a kind of television feel to put credits, to put opening credits over a scene. Um, yeah. Although, of course, it's done all the time, and I think that distinction between television titles and movie titles has long disappeared. But normally I do a, an, a vestibule, a kind of an entranceway to the film by doing a, an opening title sequence that is not the movie, and that gives me a chance to create an atmosphere that will allow the audience to segue from their outside daily lives into the movie. But this worked so well when I experimented with putting the titles over the scene that I decided it was time to try something I haven't done for many, many years. I think I did it with Rabbit and some of the early films, but uh, not for many years. Part of that was made possible by the rhythm of this opening scene, which is very languorous, it's very slow, it's almost strangely Samuel Beckett-like. Of course, there was always the question of, shall we have music for the opening sequence, because that too is a, a traditional thing and it's something that I've pretty much always done. And Howard Shore and I tried. We tried some music cues. Um, We had one that sounded a lot like cicadas that would help emphasize the heat of the summer that these two men talk about. Heat and water are kind of important to the scene. But we found whatever music that we put over the scene pointed us into a direction that was very specific and spoiled the kind of tension that is there when you don't really know what to think. You don't know whether these men are in danger or whether they are dangerous. You don't know whether to worry about them or to, to worry about what they're going to do, or, in fact, whether there's anything to worry about at all. You're not quite sure. Is this sinister? Is it not? You don't really know. We ended up just going with... Normal sound effects of some desultory traffic flow, intermittent country, and the sound of crickets and cicadas. And really, cicadas are the ones that you hear in the daytime, and crickets tend to be at night, but there is overlap. Probably not enough. Yeah. I was very happy to come back to this motel because, in fact, it was coming back. I had used this as the motel in existence. And I thought it had such great back, texture, and I loved the surrounding uh, area and never got to really use it much in existence. And so I actually came back, I thought it was the perfect motel for, for this scene. This movie, we came back to about three locations that I would used before, actually four. Not all of them ended up in the movie, but it was kind of a strange reliving of, of other movies that I've done in terms of locations. What you're looking at now is a set. Very soon, of course, we're going to see exactly where this is all going. And it sets up the tone for the entire film. It puts everybody on edge from about this moment on. When we see that this character doesn't seem to be the slightest bit bothered by the blood and the gore. And in fact, you begin to realize that he was one of the ones who created it. It's always an interesting puzzle to do a long shot like this as well. This was a steady cam shot to give the camera things to follow that lead you to other things, and that's part of the art of camera movement, and it takes a while to find your own version of that, the rhythms that work for you that way. begin to realize that these two men are very bad men and suddenly we're somewhere else connected by the cut by the scream by the little girl by her bad dream by her nightmare but we don't really know what the actual narrative connection is and a couple of people not too many started to think that perhaps that opening sequence was a dream that the little girl was having and now i hope that not too many people feel that way because it would be a very sophisticated dream for a five-year-old girl to have uh, if you include the dialogue for example in the dream and the tone of voice of the actors and so on it was not meant of course to be a dream sequence but if anybody did think that it was a dream sequence of course later in the movie they will realize that it was not when those two bad guys show up
1: especially when the lights are on they're scared of the
0: light so what we're doing here now is introducing you to the Stahl family all in bed together all cozy is it slightly idealized Mm, slightly I I don't think it's so unusual for a family to be that cozy that sounds like a brilliant solution
1: (laughs) Hey, Jack. Hey, Mom. Morning.
0: You can see from the breakfast scene that there are the usual mini-tensions going on in the family. Here, particularly between father and son, something that's being set up for later in the movie, Uh, the relationship between the father and son, which is a, a good one, but has some competitive aspects and some elements that are inevitable when a son is trying to define his own identity against his father and wants his independence, and the father is still thinking of the son as a, a little boy day? who needs a lot more guidance uh, than perhaps he's starting sh- to I'm need.
1: i in a few days, and I think uh, we're
0: playing baseball and gym class today, so I can look forward to sucking hard in right field.
1: Come on, just remember, don't let the header get the ball over your head. Unless it's
0: out of the park. Some lovely, subtle stuff going on here, in terms of acting, I think. Now we begin to get the full flavor, the tone of the music of the movie, which becomes almost a character in itself in the film and is, I think, has some hints of great American music from from American Western movies. John Ford, Howard Hawks, it has some of the tone of uh, Aaron Copeland and his extremely American flavors. And, um, and, of course, just Howard's take on all of that. You can feel the, the wide open spaces, though, even though it's the Midwest and not the West. But there is, a, there is a kind of a Western tone set up by the opening scene in the movie and then by what we're seeing now. That clock always stays at 1.15. They told me in Millbrook, and this is shot in Millbrook, Ontario, and I just changed the name to Millbrook, Indiana, uh, because I wanted to show that post office that said Millbrook. That clock hadn't worked for at least 10 years. It always says 1.15, even though it's the wrong time of day for that scene. We are now in a set when Tom walks down the street Of course, it's a real street in Millbrook, and when he walks in the door, we're on a set in Toronto. And that street that you see outside was built by our production designer, Carol Spear, and lit beautifully by Peter Soschitsky to to emulate bright daylight, very tricky thing to do, but it's absolutely flawless, you just simply cannot tell. We had a a Millbrook street out there that we could put cars on and, of course, people And you can feel the light streaming in from the window end of the diner.
1: sitting there crying, going, baby, I love you, I love
0: you. The dream that Mick the cook talks about, girlfriend waking up in the middle of the night having stabbed her husband-to-be, it does have resonances later in the movie. And when you see the movie again, stories like that that seem just kind of casual and flippant have some real meaning in terms of what happens in the movie. I berated myself after shooting the scene for not actually doing any shots of the pitcher, but I was assured by my editor that we didn't need that. You only see him in the wide shot. And as a baseball fan, I know that people are obsessed with the pitcher. And here we have Bobby. Bobby, who is a character being introduced who will have a major role to play in the development of Jack Stahl. Initially, there was a little problem with the color of the shirts. Bobby's team were in yellow, but uh, I felt that the blue was more aggressive and much more suited to the bully and his team. So there was a moment of panic where all the kids were swapping shirts just before we started to shoot. But I, I really felt there was that color symbolism. You know, the yellow shirt is weaker somehow and is embedded in our language when you say someone's yellow you mean he's he's cowardly
1: come guys come on let's go try, everyone hit the showers awesome,
0: In this locker scene, of course, the lighting is a bit expressionistic, shall we say. It's not strictly realistic. It's just on the what? expressionistic uh, side no, of real. Because the reality in this movie is... It, it's, a, it's a fantasy of a reality. It's a kind of a gesture towards that American yearning for uh, a naive, innocent past of the 1940s, 1950s. Gym class that possibly stupid. never actually existed, but that you can feel in, let's say, the original Rod Serling Twilight Zone right. stories on television, in which a perfect little small America. town often features to prominently. Come on, chicken shit, let's do this! This town is, is maybe too perfect, and that's part of the playing with mythology of Americana that America itself wants to believe, there's a lot of that in this movie. So even though it takes place in the Midwest, it takes place in Indiana, there is a sense of the Western about it in terms of American Western movies. It is a reference more to the movies than it is to the reality of the American West. Street is very Edward Hopper-ish, uh, and of course another iconic American imagist, a painter in this case, rather than a movie maker. And Hopper was very much in my mind, in Peter Sushitsky's mind, when we were discussing the design of the lighting in the movie, and what role it would play.
1: Where are we going? Well, Jack's studying over at Judy Danvers, and Martha's taking care of Sarah. Yeah. Yeah. So where are we?
0: Go. <laughs> this is not an ironic film. I mean, there's not to be there's before. not a sense of irony in the way that you might find in, let's say, a David Lynch film, where you know right away that the small town is harboring scary secrets. You would know that, for example, in Blue Velvet, almost from the first shot of that film. But In this case, we go quite far with the playfulness that you're seeing in this scene that the characters have and that the whole sense of an American small town has.
1: What's going on in there? Keep your shirt
0: on, I'm coming. Of course, what could be more iconic than a cheerleader? A high school cheerleader. What? Definitely a classic American sexual fantasy, the cheerleader fantasy. And here, the, we are playful couple decide to toy with that and themselves. And you'll notice that Vigo's hair looks like it was wet and dried, and there's a reason for that, and so does Maria's. And the, the reason is that there's a scene that was deleted, a scene where they were swimming. But it was too cold, and there were too many mosquitoes, and they decided to come home and, and play teenagers at home instead of at the what teenager's favorite life? swimming hole. Okay. Go wild!
1: No wives <laughs> you know in here, mister.
0: But you can see, of course, that as a part of that American mythology, these these characters can can play with it themselves. They, they know that they're playing cheerleader and high school jock or high school nerd, perhaps. The nerd's fantasy that he will get the cheerleader, the prom queen. And that's, that's the, the past that they're creating for themselves. When, when Maria says, we never got to be teenagers together, this is the fantasy that they're playing out. But of course, in a shot like this, you can see that they are in fact a passionately in love married couple. And I must say that there are probably not too many movies that you see in which the sex scenes are exclusively between a married couple, a couple who've been married for at least 20 years and who have children together. This seems not to be common in movies, especially American movies. It seems as though the attitude is that once you're married, your sex life is over obviously not true. I've been told that this scene that we're seeing is the first scene, the only scene from a, an American studio uh, depicting what the French call with it, which is 69, which is sort of what you're seeing right here. If that's true, I'm very proud to have broken through that barrier. But of course you can see from this scene that they are a, a couple who are very close very intimate very attuned to each other and and very much attuned to their own history together a non-violent history they're creating their own mythology as tom here talks about the first time that he knew that edie was in love with him and it's the kind of thing that people do when they when they've been married a long time is to remind each other of moments important moments in their history and their past and to enjoy those to to relive them I still love you beautifully played here by our couple No luck and so from the parents, we go to the children. At least one child and his, we're not sure if she's his girlfriend or they just hang out together. This is a scene that we had to cut for free TV broadcast or for airlines and so on because the kids are smoking a joint. And what's more, they're smoking it in public, which someone was saying to me was, that was preposterous. No one would ever do that. And I thought that that was pretty naive of that person to say that to me. And I didn't think that this was such a big deal, I must say. Um, but of course, I was. I grew up in the 60s, so maybe that has something to do with it. But we see here that Jack... There's a little streak of pessimism in him already that is just genuine. We don't really know where that comes from. It's just him, you know? It doesn't necessarily have directly to do with his family, but it does set up some of the developments in his character that we see later. So although it seems like a throwaway scene, it's not at all.
1: Give me that. Isn't that that stall faggot?
0: Yeah. This is really things. about the hierarchy of violence because yeah. these two guys in town think they're really tough. And then they suddenly come face to face with the real world and how tough it can really be. And at that point, Bobby has to put his tail between his legs and scurry away. He's, he knows that he's met a couple of guys who really, really are scary and not just high school bully scary. Can I just say how sick I am of these podunk towns and the goddamn podunks who live in them? These two actors worked out a backstory for their characters on their own, which, which is great. It's a wonderful thing that actors do, and they don't necessarily tell the director, and the director really doesn't care as long as what they do seems to work. I think they worked it out that Leland the older man was the uncle of Billy and picked him up in some small town and after he got out of jail and decided to take him out into the real world and show him what the real world was really all about.
1: Thanks Mick, good as ever.
0: A lot of that was implicit in the dialogue but their family relationship wasn't explicit and it was great that they worked that out.
1: See you tonight Charlotte
0: so that when they walk into this diner, they know who they are, those characters. They're a united front. They know what they're doing together. They've done it before. They're good at it.
1: Coffee? Black. Same. I'll have some pie. Some of that lemon meringue pie. Nice, nice. I'm sorry, we're close. I said.
0: Here you see the dynamics of not only Tom versus the two nasty guys, but Tom and the people that work for him, Mick and Charlotte. He is in control. He is quietly in control, but he is, as we see here, he is a kind of sweet, peaceful guy who would do anything we feel. To avoid a confrontation, and he hopes that he can get rid of these guys just by letting them take all his, all the money.
1: I think you're gonna be sticking around for a while, honey. Um, Tom.
0: That moment that we just saw with Billy uh, running his hand down Charlotte's breast, there was something that the actors came up with, and I, I liked it a lot because it, it's very degrading without being physically violent, but it is the violation of Charlotte and really sets up nastiness to come so that we know that they really aren't fooling around.
1: What? Her. Yes, her. <laughs> Do
0: her! The idea in this sequence was to to make Tom not be elegant and perfect in in his disposal of the two bad guys but awkward and nervous and worried and disturbed. A shot of of leland's face hanging there sets a pattern to come that that is to say that the, the violence here is exhilarating the audience tends to applaud it because after all it's set up to be completely justified there's no question that those bad guys meant business and they they opened themselves up to the violence visited on them but at the same time i wanted the audience to see the results of the violence they were going to kill us and if it weren't for tom The violence in this movie is very, very intimate. It's very physical. The kind of violence that we're most worried about is the violence done to the human body. So in this movie, there are no car crashes or explosions. It's all very physical human violence, and it does very bad things to the human body. And in each instance of violence in the movie, I have a shot or two that emphasizes that. So that right in the middle of there, exhilaration and their cheering of the violent act, the audience finds themselves looking at something particularly disturbing um, in terms of the effect of the violence, and that's really what I wanted. The audience is complicit in the violence, and then they have to be complicit in the results of it as well. If If you're going to like the violence, then you have to accept the consequences, and that, of course, has a lot to do with the theme of the movie here. This is the first tickle in the movie of celebrity. Uh, On a small level, I didn't want to overdo it. It is a small town, and yes, it's the kind of thing that would get coverage from major media, but I didn't really want to push the media presence, the celebrity presence, so it's sort of, it's, it's still kept at the small town level, even though we have seen in the hospital scene, the fact that Tom's celebrity has spread fairly f- widely, possibly nationally, but in terms of his own life, we're still keeping it fairly local at this point.
1: We're in Millbrook, just outside the home of American hero Tom Stahl. Who the
0: movie is not really about what celebrity can do to somebody, unexpected, surprising celebrity, but, but there is that element in the movie, of course. The vulnerability, the exposure, the unexpectedly yeah. negative things that celebrity can bring into your life, those are dealt with, but of course in a very specific way in this movie.
1: Not very good. Were you surprised, though, by your own reaction to the situation? Uh, what I did was... I mean, anybody would have done that. It's just it's a terrible thing. I think we'll all be better off when we get past it. Yeah, but you
0: really and is Tom reluctant just person. because that's Tom, or is he reluctant because he can sense that bad things are going to happen because of his exposure to the media?
1: Hero? man of few words. Well, I guess that's all we're going to get.
0: His son is pretty excited about what's happening. Small town kid suddenly exposed to the big time. He has yeah, to mention Larry me King. Of what you and of course, it has repercussions in his You're own life. Hero, we begin to sense that <laughs> no, <I'm not>. perhaps <laughs> the next time that he's confronted by his bully, the one that picks on him, perhaps he'll be thinking more about his father and what he did and the results of that.
1: You could probably do Larry King live, Dad. Oh, that you would be cool. It. Stop it. <laughs> Look at this, more reporters. They still there? Yeah, now there's some car parked across the road. They're just sitting there. Does anyone want some tea? I'll take some, Mom. Yes, please.
0: Without getting too specific about it, we realize that Tom's diner is full of people because they, they've they come because of him. You know, they come because of his celebrity and because he's a local hero and because they want to support him and they want to rub up against what he's done. And so they're swarming his diner in a way that we haven't seen before. But of course, that brings other visitors as well, and here they are. Grilled cheese is ready.
1: Uh, prize and strawberry Well welcome to stalls. Would you gentlemen like some coffee? You're the hero. Uh, I don't know, sir. Just well, you're the big hero.
0: Now you see that fishing poster in the background. Figo bought that. Figo bought a lot of things for the set when he went on his travels through the Midwest into upper New York State and sort of was doing some research into the tone of who Tom might be, where he might come from and, and the kinds of things that he would surround himself with. So a lot of, the th- quite a few of the things in this diner and in the stall home were actually set decorated by Vigo himself. It's a very unusual thing. I've never actually met an actor who, who bought things for the set before, I have to say. And it was so that he could feel comfortable in his character and feel that he had touchstones for his character everywhere. Everywhere he looked, there would be something that was Tom that would keep him in the groove for his character. Because his character right now is being pressured to pop out of that groove and become something else. And he's being pressured by Ed Harris's character to Reveal himself as Joey, as somebody else, as somebody from Philly, as somebody who has a past.
1: Sorry, do you think we know each other? You tell me.
0: We later realize, of course, that Joey and Farghetti do have a past together. And the game that they're playing in this scene is one that we wouldn't recognize the first time through the movie, and of course neither would Edie. So some beautiful rhythms here between the two actors playing with each other.
1: Excuse me, gentlemen. If you're not gonna order anything, my husband and I would appreciate it if you would be on your way. We ate on the road.
0: We have to ask ourselves, I suppose, the second time through, how much has Tom physically changed Has he changed enough that he really thinks that he could bluff his way out of this, that he could bluff Fogarty into thinking that he actually is somebody else who looks a lot like Joey from his past, but isn't really? That's a question that's never quite answered because he has to be playing it to the audience as well as to his audience of one, that is to say Fogarty.
1: I can't take this. Shouldn't be a problem for you. What is that supposed to mean? Now, Mr. Foggerty's just making conversation here, right? oh, uh, whatever you want to call it, this conversation is over. I think he wants us to leave, Mr. Fuggerty. Do you know what he does when he don't like people, Mr. Fuggerty? Yeah, I'm scared. We should leave before he goes all dirty hairy on us. <laughs> I want to thank you for the coffee, Joey. He really is very good. It's Tom. My name's Tom Stahl.
0: Once again, you have to remind yourself you're on a set here because when they walk out the door, it certainly looks like Milbrook out there.
1: Excuse me. What are you doing? What are you calling? Hi, Hi, Molly. This is Edie Stahl. Is he in? I'm fine, thanks. You calling Sam? Yes.
0: In the original script there was a scene in which we introduced the character of the sheriff uh, in a scene in the diner that was just another scene of sort of small town bantering in a diner and i realized looking at the script and anticipating this scene that actually this was a better way to introduce the sheriff and so i decided not to shoot that other scene of course that saved a lot of time and so on but i had a sense that that scene would end up on the cutting room floor and uh, that w- it would be a waste of time and money to shoot it that could be spent on detailing of other scenes like this one
1: i thought i was under the limit
0: this was the only take in which ed had fogerty being very distracted by his crossword puzzle in the uh, in the newspaper and we did a few more elaborate things with it but i liked it so much the fact that he was being insolent with the sheriff in a way that was not exactly illegal, nothing that the sheriff could do about it, but just by not paying too much attention to him, showing uh, Fargerty's arrogance and sense of invulnerability.
1: We take care of our nice people. You understand me? Yeah, sure. Don't let me see you around again. Well, you keep up the good work, officer.
0: Here's the nice ending to that complex crane shot that took us through the whole scene where the camera was really glued to the car.
1: Charles Roach, Philadelphia, indicted on three counts of murder.
0: And now we begin to get a sense of of how much family values work in this small town. The sheriff is there. He's very comfortable sitting on their sofa. You get the feeling, of course, that he's done that many times and that they all know each other and there were scenes suggested in the original script that would have emphasized that more but i really thought that the shorthand imagery of him sitting there in the uh, so comfortably in in their living room meant that i didn't really have to elaborate on the relationship that they had uh, the fact that sam the sheriff perhaps knew edie when she was a little girl or they, they had a, you know their families had a history together perhaps it's all implied, and I didn't think it was necessary to spend screen time outlining it. So it's always a question of finding a balance between what the audience needs to know and you have to be explicit about, and what they get already. You don't really want to... You don't want to be boring, but you also don't want to leave gaps in, in people's understanding of relationships. The two shot of Tom and Edie together is my little homage to... The painting, American Gothic. It's it's not exact. It's sort of an update of that, but it's a country couple, modern country couple. It's not meant to be obvious, of course, but it it was in my mind.
1: I had to ask. I've done some research on this uh, Joey Cusack. I didn't find anything, but there is a Richie Cusack in Philadelphia. Apparently, he's the head of some kind of crime syndicate. In that city. Men like this come to our town and start harassing a citizen. We have to take them seriously. Sure. All right. so if you folks see them coming around, you, you let me know. Will do. I'm sorry, Sam. Do you want a piece of pie or something? Ah, no, thanks, he. I'd love to, but I gotta get back to work. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, Sam, thank you. It's good to know you're watching out for me. Come on, Tom. You know we look out for our own here. Good night,
0: night. After the sheriff goes, we can see the Thanks. stress that Edie has, in fact, been under. That she's being brave, she's being tough. She's a strong woman. She's a professional woman. But what's going on is actually quite scary and quite threatening to her and her family. And so we begin to see here, you know, the emotional reality underneath. There's good as gone. And Tom, we have to ask ourselves a second time, through what is Tom thinking? He he realizes, of course, that it is his life as Joey that's brought all this into Millbrook, into his home. <laughs> it's over and done with. And it's actually, if you see, it's his body language there. It's just giving you a suggestion that he's feeling the weight of it. I can't, as a director, let on exactly what's happening with Tom. And, of course, neither can Vigo. We we really talked a lot about those moments when a little bit of Joey pokes through. And we're coming up to a close-up that... In retrospect, this is a very Joey-like look on Tom's face, very Joey-like, but just for a fleeting instance. It's just that the hardness, that toughness is there. I had to be very discreet with the angles that I shot Vigo from. Some angles, he immediately looked more like Joey than Tom. And I had to really be careful not to give too much of Joey away. Hello? Shotgun, Edie. Get the shotgun.
1: Tom, 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 what's
0: wrong? I was worried about this whole sequence when I first read it, wondering if it would really work. And I think one of the problems that I could foresee was that instead of cutting from the good guy to the bad guys approaching the house, there's a certain point at which the bad guys in their car disappear. Because, as we later find out, they're not really going to the house, they're just toying with Tom, they're taunting him, tormenting him. And so you're really cutting between the good guys and the good guys, and that means that you don't get the kind of tension and drama that you normally would. You see right here, this is a sort of strange structure that evolves. I just wasn't sure that it was gonna all fit together, this sort of panic that Tom feels. But once we started shooting it, it was obvious that it would work, and in fact, was really very necessary. Not only does it give you the geography of the house and the diner, but it really starts to set up the shotgun, which is critical, and the relationship between this couple and Jack, the son, and the gun. All of this is set up by this scene of panic and um, weakness and vulnerability on the part of Tom. And a little bit of craziness, as he says, a little bit of craziness. I think the second time through, if you see the movie the second time, you begin to realize that the panic is there because he knows he's Joey and he knows who he's dealing with and he knows that Fargerty and his men are quite capable of coming to his house and killing his family just to prove a point. The first time through, it might seem extreme that Tom would panic quite so much, but I think when you realize that he is in fact Joey and that he does know Fargerty very well, it makes a lot more sense. (laughs) Hi. <laughs> I. I think I'm losing
1: my mind. No, no. Well, no.
0: notice in this scene and in uh, many of the other scenes, of the prominence of the cross that Vigo's uh, wearing, and in fact, that Maria wears as well. And both the actors felt that these characters would be wearing crosses. I hadn't thought of it, but the whole cathesis of small town America. Christian values, family values, in God we trust and all of that, I felt that uh, they were completely right and that it added, without being obstreperous about it, a kind of strange undertone that forced you to discuss with yourself the nature of Christianity as as we find it in America now, which has been a very contentious element of the Bush administration. ...and the paradoxical nature of Christianity in the national life of the US. All of those undertones are in this movie. They are certainly things that I discussed with Vigo at length... ...when we were talking about whether he would do the movie or not.
1: What's going on, Dad? False alarm.
0: Here, Vigo is holding the shotgun shells in a very professional way, which he says he learned from his father. He's keeping them between his knuckles, and it's a really, very much uh, a technique of a very experienced shotgunner. It's a detail I really liked.
1: Some mob guys showed up at the diner. He saw me on TV, and they came by to take a look at me.
0: Jack is—he's shocked to see his father in this state of mind. And we have this scene between the two of them that I really love, and I think is a beautiful performance here by Ashton, weaving his way through all the feelings that the kid would have. The fascination with the gun, which he would be familiar with as a farm kid, but now the gun, instead of being something that you might shoot birds with or or tin cans, it's suddenly been presented as a weapon that could be used against people. And so here we see Jack trying to work through what's going on. And in a way, he's a surrogate for the audience, which is also trying to figure this out. Where are they going to go with this? What does Tom think he can do about it? Maybe. And there you see a completely Tom-like face, slightly embarrassed at what he's done. He's very sweet to his son.
1: And you came running back here to But at the end
0: of it, there is that one Joey moment when he says we deal with it, and he clicks the gun. And there's just that hint of a guy who looks like he might go a lot further than Tom would ever go in terms of defending himself. And that was also a question in everybody's mind and Vigo, how much do we want to let Joey show through there? It's just a slight hint of it. to get commercial work from Chrysler for this, that Chrysler 300D, which was designed to look like a, a mafia car, a mobster car, and I couldn't resist. I really thought it fit what Fogarty might think of himself and how he might present himself, so that's why we use that car. How do they feel? Good.
1: Yeah, I think I like them. I have a pair of these myself. They look great and they really last. Really? Okay, I'll take them.
0: I suppose the uh, the mall now stands in for Sarah, the saloon or perhaps the general store that you would find in a, a Western movie, you know, the general goods store where people would come to buy shoes and shotgun shells and food and so on. And uh, the mall, is, mall stands in for that in this modern Western. Sarah! And now it's Edie alone facing... A scary guy and i think maria felt that she was facing a scary guy and ed harris not at all in that he was difficult or hostile or anything like that but she had so much respect for him as an actor and ed was so focused in his character and uh, maria i think was finding the scene a little bit difficult she was slipping and sliding how brave can edie be how uh, abusive can she be and of course there was a question of We needed her to be there to have this conversation, but of course there was always the feeling that she would never really talk to this guy, that she would just pick up her kid and run away. He wouldn't know you, somebody like you. And so it was a question of figuring out how to play that, and so there was a lot of really good actor interplay between Ed and Maria here, and and in terms of Ed helping Maria kind of stabilize and focus her character on what was going on, because... There is a sense in which Edie does want to hear what Fogarty has to say. There's just a hint in her gut that she should listen to this, that she should know something here, that that there's somewhere in her that doesn't know that Tom is Joey but begins to feel that this is not just an accident of fate. It's not just a celebrity television problem and a case of mistaken identity, that this isn't just a, a kind of Hitchcock wrong man scenario.
1: And ask him, Edie, how come
0: he's so good at killing people? Something in Fogarty is very convincing. And that's what keeps Edie there. And I think Maria had to find that before the scene started to play well.
1: I thank you for your time. You have an enchanting daughter. and Mrs. Stahl.
0: Don't forget your shoes. So,
1: how's your dad?
0: I don't know. Now we're back with the new Jack. This is Jack, whose father is a celebrity. And this is, of course, something that Bobby, who seems for some reason to be obsessed with Jack, we never quite know why, but it does seem that bullies have their favorite victims. He immediately goes to the sore spot. He says, you know, your father's a tough guy, and you're not. Your father's a celebrity, and you're not. Bobby, leave him alone. Shut up, skank. Uh-oh, he's getting mad.
1: Jack, let's just get out of here, okay? Jackie's an asshole, you know that.
0: Jack has proven to be a very good politician in the scene that we've seen before in the locker room. He can talk his way out of things. He can be funny, he can use his wit to avoid violence, which is something one might wish more politicians were actually capable of doing. Make me laugh. He's ready to walk away here as well, but suddenly there's this moment where the decision is to be his father, to compete with his father and to let the rage come out, to let the anger come out. And to let the craziness come out, the, the, the craziness that allows him to surprise Bobby, even though perhaps uh, on an, an equal footing he would never be as strong as Bobby, he'd never be able to beat him up really in a fair fight. But it's that rage and that surprise, which seems to be exactly what happened with his father in the diner. His father surprised the bad guys by his ability to bar fight, to use the coffee pot that was in his hand as a weapon. been riding
1: me all year, Dad. He's a jerk. He's a jerk. Yeah, he's a jerk. That's no excuse. You stand up to him, you don't put him in the hospital. Oh, big deal. It's the best thing anyone could have done to him. Besides, I only got suspended.
0: Of course, this is a critical scene in the relationship between these two, and a very interesting moment in terms of the role of humor, strangely enough, in the movie, because there are a lot of laughs in this movie, actually.
1: In this family, we do not solve our problems by hitting people. No, in this family, we
0: shoot them. And that's one of them. When he says, no, in this family, we shoot them, that gets a big laugh. Two seconds later, the audience is stunned into silence by the slap because it's something they never expected from Tom. And we wonder if that's some of Joey coming out, of course, later. We might ask ourselves that. But it opens up the whole question of how humor plays in this movie and and that delicate line that you walk in a movie that has serious, dramatic intentions. How funny can you afford to be and, and still not lose your audience? Because if the audience is still laughing when you have changed your tone into something serious and heavy, that can be a problem. It can backfire on you, the use of humor in a moment like that. Order. There are many moments in this film that work that way, and I must say it was a relief to me when I realized that the audience reaction did seem to work. They seemed to be able to twist and turn with the humor as it morphed into seriousness. It's a tricky tightrope to walk, but I think all of my movies are funny, and I don't think I've ever made a movie without humor, except maybe The Brood. That might have been the only not funny one.
1: He really that you're this Joey... Cusack. I mean, the things that he told me this afternoon, I couldn't. What remember. things? Things, just bullshit. But he's, uh. he's sure that it's you. And we have to convince him that it's not. Well, I don't think he's interested in examining my DNA.
0: And here, this is a classic sort of American standoff, isn't it? It's a, the homesteader, his shotgun, his wife by his side, protecting his property against the bad guys, who happen to be driving a car instead of riding up on horses, but it still has that feel. Iconic Americana, but with a the subverted element that becomes very strong, of course.
1: Charlie, hey, look what we found. Come on. Yeah? (laughs) Come on!
0: This was technically quite a, a difficult scene to shoot photographically because we shot this side of the scene, looking at the bad guys, in bright, bright sunlight. By the time we turned around the next day to shoot this side towards the house, It was overcast and raining, and so it was up to Peter Sushitsky to manage to balance the light and shadow, the brightness, the the hint of goldenness of the sun. Very tricky to do, very, very tricky. It's a constant problem, of course, when you're shooting on, on a location and not in a studio where you can control the lights, but this was particularly difficult.
1: Put it down, Joey. Come closer.
0: And at this point, a you can see Vigo transforming in quite a spectacular way, I think, just with this walk right here into Joey. That's a Joey face. That's not Tom anymore. And Fogarty knows it. Suddenly they're communicating with each other in a way that neither Jack nor Edie could really understand. This is now two Philly guys, two gangsters, playing their games together. And so this is where Jack, the look that he's giving his father is, who are you really?
1: You see how cozy it can be when you decide to play nice.
0: And now it's now, come on. Joey and Fargerty. There's no Tom here special. anymore. They care and they both know it.
1: It'd be better if you just leave or- now.
0: The violence in this movie, which, I, as I've said, is very intimate and very physical, was developed when I was looking at some DVDs that basically teach you how to kill people on the street. There, you could find them on the net. There are quite a few varieties of that. Because I wanted it to be very realistic, the violence in this movie, and not very balletic, but like a street fight, like a vicious, nasty, awkward, dirty street fight in which the social contract has been completely cancelled, there's no question of rules or what is fair, what's not fair, everything, anything goes in a situation like that. And I found that to be the most valuable thing that I learned from those DVDs is, oh yes, when someone comes up to a, a gun, the social contract of civility, of discussion, of conversation, of reason, all of that is gone, the only thing is, it, it remaining is survival and killing
1: should have killed you, (sighs) McEnfilly. Yeah, Joey. You should have.
0: And that's something, obviously, here, that Jack... is learning very quickly. But like the audience who are exhilarated when Fargarty is killed. Now the aftermath is a lot more difficult to swallow. You're suddenly a person who's killed someone else and it changes you forever. There's no going back. You cannot be that person that you were anymore. And the son is realizing it and the father who is more Joey here than Tom and who looks quite scary and we're not quite sure what he's going to do and there's a real battle here between the tom and the joey part of this man his being disturbed by the fact that he has introduced his son to that part of himself and yet a feeling perhaps of inevitability that it had to happen since he is his son and the son's awareness that his life has changed forever and not particularly in the best possible way. It's a very emotional scene. Of course, Howard Shore's music is just gorgeous in terms of the way it addresses all the complexities of emotion that is going on. A very naked scene here. No, nothing to hide behind, just the two people in a room. And I've said it many times and I mean it, that can be the most exciting, most difficult kind of scene you'll ever do. Much more difficult than a big special effects scene with explosions and stuff you can hide behind. Just two people in a room. And this was of course a very difficult scene in terms of the emotion, for the actors I mean, and for me too. Just very tricky in terms of the tone that keeps shifting between them and the writing. Very satisfying when you get it right.
1: What do you think you heard? It's not what I heard.
0: It's what I saw. A scene that we initially thought we would shoot on a location in a real hospital and realize that the rooms were so simple. You have so much more flexibility on a set where you can take the ceiling off and put lights there or remove walls to move the camera. Of course, one of the drawbacks of that is that sometimes my actors come up with interesting things like this moment in which maria felt that the character would vomit would go into the bathroom which of course we never there was no bathroom there when we built the set there was just a door that led to the studio and i like what she came up with so much that i had to um, ask carol spear production designer to quickly whip up a little hospital bathroom with. Whatever we had available on the set, which she did very quickly. But that's part of the way I work. It can be interesting for the crew. That is to say, I don't have everything mapped out, I don't use storyboards. I really like the actors to collaborate. And when you do that, it means that everybody's going to come up with new things that are unexpected in the moment of playing the scene. I, thought I really want that to be possible. I, I really don't want to freeze everybody to with storyboards and say, no, no, but you can't do that you. because I never imagined it when I was doing the storyboards, and therefore your intuition can have no play. I really born I you. For Vigo, a very difficult and strange choreography because he's pinned in the bed, and I like that. I really wanted maria to be the one who was circling around him buzzing around him jousting with him coming forward moving back and and he really physically of course has a very limited range of motion and it gives her the position of dominance and attack and sets up the fact that he's wholly defensive and is trying Seriously? desperately to explain himself Stop. and to hold everything together, that's and she's the one who stalled. darts in and out. And it's her emotion that's dancing all did over the place, that and that's exemplified by the the, that... the difference in their physicality. It's available. Yeah. It's a very difficult thing to play. I mean, you, you, Vigo really had to except where he was and to to go completely with that.
1: Guess that was available too.
0: You can see right here. He is really like a butterfly pinned to a spreading board. The new tom joey hybrid he's out of the closet everybody in his family anyway knows who he is except they don't really know who he is they don't know what his past has really been he's never really had a chance or the desire or the possibility up to this point to to talk about his experiences as joey the way that a normal husband and wife and father and son would talk about the father's past. You know, the children do get to know some of the mythology of their parents' past. They see photographs, they hear stories, they hear anecdotes, and suddenly you've got Jack realizing that he knows nothing about his father's past.
1: If I talk to Sam about you, will
0: you have me whacked? He doesn't know what his relationship with him is. And in fact, for Tom, too, he doesn't know who he is anymore. He doesn't know where he fits in the family. And now he's just faking it. He's just going through the motions. And you can just see it in, in the way Vigo's moving in this scene the pain and the confusion is right there in his body language. And now of course we go back to life as it has to be lived. Uh, The facade has to be maintained until Tom and Edie can figure out what to do with their lives. And of course here's the threat to that is their friend But a man who's also the authority figure, friendly as he might be, he's a danger to them. And we wonder, once again, looking at Tom's body language, his face, is he thinking it's time to confess? Is he gonna become Joey not just to his family, but to the town, to the community, to the world at large?
1: Come inside for a minute.
0: You have here in Sam, someone who is small town, but not stupid. He's cagey. He knows something's going on. And in this scene, you can see with Vigo, you can see that we were playing with the possibility in Tom's mind that it might be better, it might be necessary, it might be inevitable that he confess to Sam who he is and accept the consequences. Might as well. And now in comes Edie, and she is in public. She's suddenly in a situation she hasn't been in before. That is to say, she is facing this Tom-Joey hybrid in her home for the first time, and Sam's there. It's not private. How is she going to play it? It's a very tricky scene. Oh, no, we're just talking about that. Mm.
1: I'd like to hear it. Well, it's just that none of this makes
0: any sense. Is Edie so upset with Tom for this betrayal that she will blow the whistle on him? Would it give her pleasure? Is she that angry? Does she think that they can live the lie or not? I'm saying I think I need to hear the truth.
1: Truth. The truth.
0: And in this shot, a two-shot. There are two things happening. If you watch Tom, you're seeing a man who's thinking, "I'm about to confess," because Sam knows. Tom is. And just at that moment, Edie saves him. Sam knows something's going on, but Edie plays the emotion game, the crying game. She says, I'm going to cry, and you're going to have to leave, and Sam knows it. You can see by his face. You can see that he knows he's being outfoxed at this moment, and that Edie is making it impossible for him to stand there in front of them. I guess I'd be going. they're presenting a unified front. And Sam is maybe not sure anymore. He probably came there thinking that Tom really was Joey. now he's not so sure. But he's leaving the door open, even as he closes it, for them to come to him. And maybe, as a friend, to work out a way to confess and still go public with it and maintain some kind of life. We see that Edie is so conflicted, she rescued him, and she almost hates herself for doing that. And that slap, that act of violence, brings out the Joey.
1: Fuck you, Joey!
0: The original script that I read, the scene ended when she slapped Tom and said, fuck you, Joey, and then she just disappeared up the stairs. And I said to Josh Olson, the writer, that can't be the ending of the scene. That's actually just the beginning of the scene. And here's the crucial moment, the moment when she says, "Yes, I, I want you, even if you're Joey. Even if you repel me, you're, the, the Tom part of you is still there. And and maybe there's even something about the Joey that, that is exciting, that's exhilarating. That's certainly the way that Maria and Vigo and I talked about it. It was not. A, it's not a rape scene. People who are inattentive might." think that it is, but it, it, it's really much more complex than that. I wanted Howard to address that in the music. There's a moment when the music is really telling you that this is a much more complex thing than just the scene of, of rape or violence. It's a physically difficult scene to shoot and an emotionally very difficult scene to shoot and also in terms of the music, it was quite complex, because we wanted to suggest that she's attracted and repelled by Joey. She's still looking for the tom that's in this creature. There's a great, intense sexuality that comes out of the situation and a desperation. And then at this moment, also a disgust, a revulsion, not only in terms of what Tom has done to their lives, but in terms of what she's just done, the fact that she's fucked this guy that she barely knows. And it's been satisfying, and that scares her. And here's a classic moment in a marriage. I thought at this point you could call the movie scenes from a marriage. The circumstances that are specific in the movie here are unique, but maybe a familiar scene from many marriages, I have to say. The bruises here on Maria's back are makeup bruises, but they were inspired for me by the bruises that she actually ended up with on her back from playing that scene on the stairs over and over again with no padding. The stairs were really wood. They were hard. She was really quite bruised. And, in fact, our stunt coordinator laughed when we called him. He said he's never been asked for stunt padding for a sex scene before. We, we were thinking that maybe we could do that, but, in, in fact, it would be too easy to reveal and would spoil the, the scene. So we ended up with no padding, which meant that both actors were really beaten up uh, after doing that scene over and over again. Very difficult scene, very scary scene for actors to play. Yeah, it's Richie, what you and now, of course, Tom is the husband who has to sleep on the sofa, but other things are going on as well, and we have this mysterious phone call from somebody who has been mentioned before. If we were being attentive, we would know that Sam mentioned a Richie Cusack. But do we know who he really is? It's not important yet for the audience to know. They just know that Tom's other life is calling him right now, and he has to go to it. And in this sequence, as, as he drives to Philly, Tom really completes the transition, the transformation into Joey. It's really lovely stuff that Vigo does, not just, I mean, in the driving scene, but as we see that once he arrives in Philly, his body language is completely different. His face is different and his accent is different. And that's something that when this film was shown at the Cannes Film Festival, the French audience really couldn't tell that subtle shift in accent that I think most people in North America, anyway, will definitely uh, hear. It's a subtle thing, but it's a very definite thing. All of this was shot in Toronto for Philly. Philadelphia is one of the few other cities in North America that has streetcars, so even the Toronto streetcar tracks were, were shockingly accurate. And it pleased me to make a sort of fantasy Philly as well, because as I say, there's a kind of a fantasy version of America that it works in this film that, that kind of dislocates it slightly, I think. For an american audience there'll be a strange dislocating effect in this film even though uh, i've been assured that this bar is exactly like a lot of bars in philly (laughs) we'll see and this bar in fact is the same bar that i shot a scene for in the fly uh, which jeff goldblum has an arm wrestle with george vallow a famous canadian boxer who was playing a character this many years later that was 1986 And this was 2005, and we're shooting in the same location. And it still looks great. Of course, it's dressed differently here. This is just a wonderful, critical moment in the movie. That seems to be casual, and then it, for me, it has huge resonance, and it was just so beautifully played by Vigo. Yeah. when he says, "Yeah, I'm Reuben, are you Joey? And Vigo sits down, and in this perfect Philly accent, he says, "Yeah, I'm Joey. And that's really that's the first I mean. time for the audience that he yes. acknowledges that. <clears throat> he still is Joey. Whatever else he managed to do in those 20 years of trying to make himself be Tom, he can still sit there and say, yeah, I'm Joey, because he is. It's really kind of nice, and it's really not very typical of a thriller, let's say, that at this point in the movie, You don't really know where the hero's going. You don't really know who Richie is, why he's going there. And that's why it was so critical that the character of Richie, played by William Hurt, should be very strong and very complex, perverse, charismatic, sinister, funny, all of those things, because the strength of the end of the movie really depends on the dynamic between the two brothers. Of course, we don't even know exactly that that's who Tom is going to see, his brother. And we did shoot a scene in which Tom didn't just leave the house, but did go upstairs to pack, and at which point he had a tense conversation with Edie, in which he said, I'm going to see my brother, Richie. But I really felt that ultimately it was redundant It was much better for him to just leave the house without saying a word to Edie, with Edie rocking herself in her distress upstairs and Tom going back to Philly to take care of the business he has to take care of. This is a set, of course, this part of it, but the exterior is the Eaton Estate, which is a famous landmark outside of Toronto, a kind of pseudo-Norman castle, I think, basically. And I chose it because in doing research into Philly and the architecture of Philadelphia, I, I saw the sort of lumber barons and the steel barons and the people who were making a lot of money in, in at the turn of the century, at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, built some major fantasy uh, houses they were really all kind of conglomerations of fantasies of castles and chateaus and manor houses and so on because these these nouveau riche robber barons thought very much of themselves and that that encouraged me to give richie a very outrageously pretentious house richie is really a kind of small-time mobster but he he has pretensions. No, you should have. And since I switched the mob from being Italian, as they were in the graphic novel and in uh, Josh's script originally, to being Irish, because I I didn't feel that Ed Harris and uh, William Hurt would be convincing Italians, and I wanted to distance it from the Soprano syndrome. <laughs> Anything? and so here we have a mobster whose pretension is that he is a kind of a an irish lord of the manor that's where the decor comes from he's got racehorses on the wall and so on and that was sort of the key to the production design and uh, it gave a wonderful context for for william hurt to play this um funny bawdy sinister cruel uh, a very pretentious gangster like megalomaniac know, and of course the older brother of joey <clears throat> do you
1: like being married what
0: do you like in the opening married? scene when they first meet and that kind of strange hug and kiss and the sort of boyhood game of forehead against forehead that they seem to be playing. You You get the sense, and I think William was playing, and we wanted it to be played that way, that Richie Richie would like Joey to come back. He would like Joey to become his brother again. And he is curious about what Joey has done with his life. And his questions about marriage are not just... From his ego and so on, and it, it also comes from his desire to know whether Joey is morning. so settled in this other life that he could never come back, could've could've or whether there's a chance that a he might still come back and settle up the things that have to be settled.
1: We're brothers, what you think would happen?
0: In Josh's original script and in the Graphic novel, these two men are not brothers, and I, I really wanted them to be brothers because the emotion is intensified yeah. just by the very fact that they're, they're siblings. Yeah. Their relationship is more easily defined by the sibling rivalry the older brother, the younger brother. We have Cain and Abel resonances. We have all kinds of intensity that's brought to it by the fact that they're brothers.
1: You kill some of his guys.
0: But also, It gives me a shorthand way of suggesting their past together. I didn't really want to get into monologues about incidents from their past. But if they're brothers, just a tickle, a hint here and there, the story about wanting to strangle his brother in his crib that Richie tells, just those little moments give you a, a taste of their past together without having to really paint in all the details. That's something that was interesting for me with these characters in this movie because they are familiar. Whereas with characters that I often deal with who are very eccentric and much more like outsiders and grotesques, you really do have to fill in the details because they're not familiar to people. So when you're dealing with a normal family, for example, at the beginning of the movie, you don't really have to do too much to convey to the audience who the people are. In a way, this movie was a kind of reversal of what I normally do starting from the outside in with strange people and trying to bring the audience along into their lives and here I start with relatively normal familiar people and take you into the strangeness that you find now in this scene it's a family scene again but it's not like the family scene we see at the beginning of the movie
1: you cost me A hell of a lot, Joey. A hell of a lot. Looks like you're doing all right over here.
0: Yeah, I am. I am.
1: <laughs> I'm still behind the A-ball. Because of you, there's a certain lack of respect, a certain lack of trust. The boys in Boston are just waiting for me to go down. Always were a problem for me Joey when mom brought you home from the hospital. I tried to strangle you in your crib (laughs) I guess all kids try to do that She caught me Whacked the daylights out of me I've heard that story
0: Well, what do you think? And at this point, Richie realizes with the instinct that a a manipulator of men has that his brother will not come back, that his brother will not become his lieutenant or or his collaborator in the mob, and that therefore the only decision he feels he can make in terms of dealing with the mess that Joey has left him with is to kill him but it wasn't something that he was hoping for. So there's a strange intensity, determination, and also a perverse sadness that Richie is expressing here. Richie knows it's too late for peace. But like a lot of older brothers, he's underestimated his kid brother again. And in a way, Richie reveals himself to be something of a klutzy gangster. He's really not good at this. And there's always some question about who are these guys he's got in his house. <laughs> I, think, I think at a certain point, Vigo was convinced, sitting there, he was saying, in his mind, he was playing that his brother was gay.
1: How do you fuck that up? How do you fuck that up?
0: That's why he wasn't married. That's why some of the hoods in his house were, shall we say, more effete than you would normally expect. And, I, and of course, when I was casting these guys, like Bruce here, I was wanting to suggest that there was more going on in this household than what just Give a mouth. gangster it with his henchmen, that brother. there was some strange Fucking thing going me, on. I wouldn't have said it was necessarily fuck. gay, gangster, perverse, but it pleased Vigo to think that when he was trying to figure out how to play the relationship. And here's also a critical moment, a moment that normally I would have thought would require music, suspense music, but it's also a moment of great humor. And I I found that when we played this scene for audiences, they got the humor and they laughed. Richie is funny. And so to play suspenseful music when your audience is laughing is a big mistake. And that's why, although Howard and I tried some music over that scene where Richie suddenly sees that the door is open and that somehow Joey has foxed him, all of this stuff is too funny. And it's played for humor, of course, and once again, Richie is a klutz. He's locked out of his own mansion. The music could not start until the humor was over. Jesus and that starts to be at about this point. kill his brother, point-blank, does have the toughness that a mobster would require, the brutality, and yet he suppressed it for all those years, and he, he seems to want to suppress it again. And he's throwing the gun away here, not just to get rid of evidence, but as a sort of a purification ritual that's happening here, without pushing it too much, but... The idea that he, he, he's got to wash Joey away, wash the sins of Joey away. Whether that will be enough, we, we don't really know. Can he really get away with this? I mean, can he really do this, leave everybody dead there and never be found out? We don't know. But What's foremost in his mind now is the life that he left behind. He's not ready to give it up. He's not ready to go out into the desert and create another person. He's certainly not ready to be Joey, and I mean, we joked about maybe Joey just takes over the mob and moves right into Richie's mansion, you know, that was the joke. But of course he can't do that. And this, I have to say, this last scene was, I've never been on a set that was more emotionally charged in all the movies that I've made, I have to say. A lot of that came from Maria, but just the the intense emotion, the sadness, the despair, the hope, all of those things mixing together. By the end of the day, people, the crew was walking around in tears. Everybody was tiptoeing around. Everybody was afraid to speak. Of course, the fact that the the two children were involved as well had something to do with it. And you can see from Heidi, who's playing little Sarah, she, too, was completely suffused with the the tone, the emotional tone that there was on the set. And it just continued the whole day. It was really... Quite intense. One of the difficult things about a scene like this is maintaining that emotional. Intensity throughout the course of an entire day where you have to stop, relight, set up for close-ups, go away, come back, have your makeup redone, tears, no tears, continuity, and yet maintain that uh, focus. And I think it was beautifully played by everybody. Everybody was absolutely locked into the same plane of uh, emotional understanding here. And as Josh Olson says, in the way the script got printed up, the last page only said two words, there's hope. And he wondered whether I was really going to be able to shoot that last page. And he felt that we had done that, that at this moment, as complex and strange and perverse as it is between the two of them, man, for this family, there there is some kind of strange hope. the end.